uh, verses 10 to 35 from Luke chapter 13 in our time together. Um, when I was uh, younger, much younger, I don't know if you ever did this, we used to go to the Jersey Shore and I used to want to play this game where I could stand as the waves were crashing and I was going to stand and not be moved. Did you ever, you ever play that game when you were a kid? Didn't work terribly well. <laughs> you know, those big waves would come in and they would just, they would just kind of wipe you out. I mean, I tried, but it didn't work. Some things in life are unstoppable. How much more the creator of those waves? What we find in Luke chapter 13 is Jesus is here and you will not stop the coming of his kingdom or his death on the cross. I want you to watch in these encounters about the unstoppable ministry of Christ. And what you'll find is this, folks. If you're, on, if you're part of Christ's team, it's a wonderful thing. And if you're not, you will be knocked over by the waves at the end of the day. So notice verses 10 to 21. We hear about the kingdom of God, which is unstoppable. You'll notice something if I could just read verse 10. Verse 10 says, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. That's kind of the first movement. Go, go down for just a moment to verse 22. And he was passing through one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. So here's your image. Jesus is on the move. He is preaching and he is teaching and he's doing it with the focus of he is going somewhere and that is Jerusalem and it's not going to stop in Jerusalem. It's going to be result in the exaltation and everything to follow. But you have this focus of our blessed Lord. Do you see that? And as he's teaching, I love this text. Jesus never leaves people behind in the process, does he? So Jesus is teaching, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm teaching, I, I, you know, we, we, as teachers, we have several teachers in here, we're supposed to be really attentive to our students, right? We're always looking for feedback. Nobody does that better than Jesus. So here he is teaching, and the Bible says this in verse 11. Behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness. I want you to think back, unless my math is wrong, Go back to 1996. Now, for some of our young people, you can't go back that far. You weren't around. Okay, fair enough. But for those that are older, go back to 1996, 95, 96. What were you doing then? Suppose in 1996, you got a strange disease, some scoliosis. And from 1996 to now, you have lived your life bent over. You've been to every doctor imaginable. And listen, after a couple of years, you finally just throw up your hands and you say, this is the way it's going to be. Don't you? I mean, that's, that's kind of how life works. So for 18 years, had had a sickness caused by a spirit and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. You say, so Doug, every time somebody's sick, it's because it's demonic. 
know as you read the scriptures. That's not the case, folks. But sometimes it is. I don't know the difference. It's not my job to figure it out. I can leave that one with God. But this particular woman, her sickness was bound up in demonic activity. Demons do two things in the gospel. They torment people and they tempt them. That's how it works. And notice in verse 12, and when Jesus saw her, he's teaching, he's going to the cross, but he sees this woman. She doesn't initiate it, he does. He called her over and he said, woman, you are freed from your sickness. He laid his hands upon her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? Since 1996, could never barely look up and in one moment Jesus touches her. Wow. Now that should be the end of the story, shouldn't it? And she began glorifying God, and everybody glorifies God. Case done. Move on. Not exactly. Because there's a huge problem here. The religious movement doesn't like it. Because you do something that doesn't work with their parameters. Now, folks, there are clear parameters that are established by the Scripture that we can never violate. But you know what happens sometimes? Doug Finkbeiner develops his own parameters and they're always smaller. Isn't that what we do? And you have people that have smaller parameters than God has. And because Jesus works outside of their parameters, they discard the whole thing. So notice what happens. The synagogue official, verse 14, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, and this guy's a little bit sly. He doesn't go directly at Jesus, does he? He doesn't say, hey, you can't be doing this on, on the Sabbath. No, nah, no, nah. he goes around the corner. He indirectly talks to the people. Kind of sly coward, in my opinion, but nonetheless. Saying to the multitude in response, there are six days in which work should be done. Therefore, come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath. She apparently wasn't there to be healed. She was listening to Jesus. Jesus initiated he was upset with Jesus, but he went at Jesus through her. Verse 15. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites. Not just that individual. He's thinking more broadly of others that are there too. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? <laughs> on the Sabbath... Don't you give something to your animal to drink? And, you know, they had to be sitting there going like, well, well, yeah. Well, this is not an animal. This is a woman created in the image of God, loved of God and valued by him. Look what he says. And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, perhaps indicating that she is a woman of faith, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? He throws a question back at him, doesn't he? 
They come in here and you broke the parameters. You can do this anytime. Jesus says, this woman suffered for 18 years. You see her as an inconvenience to your system. I see her as one that I love as I'm teaching you about the kingdom and on my way to Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but which side do you want to be on? I want to be with Jesus, man. He's focused, purposeful, all of those things. But he loves and doesn't miss anybody in the process. And as he said this, verse 17, all his opponents were being humiliated. Can you imagine? And the entire multitude was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done to, by him. I bet that synagogue leader went home that night and told his wife. His wife said, hey, how'd your day go today? And that's not so good. I mean, you know, I mean, just, I mean, he's just humiliated because why couldn't he figure that one out? It was in the Bible. God values people more than animals course now i want to just for a second before we move on i want to be careful here because I, I was thinking um in second corinthians chapter 12 do you remember where we read that paul has a thorn in the flesh and what is that At the end of the day we don't know i mean if i had to make a guess i'd probably say eye problems but i'm not sure but you remember what Paul calls it? Paul says this illness is a messenger of Satan, from Satan, doesn't he? So he apparently made some kind of connection similar to this. And here's my point. Did God release Paul from that in 2 Corinthians 12? No. Did God love Paul less than he loved this woman? No. So is it possible that God permits us to stay under some of these kinds of things? I mean, God holds Satan and the hordes of hell like, a like, like he's got a dog on the end of a leash. And when he wants, he yanks that thing back. When he permits, he permits. And God may not be directly behind it, but he's always over it. Do you see? And so whether he straightens a woman up and frees her in that way, he draws her to himself when he does that, does he not? Or whether he allows Paul to remain under and drive him back to God for grace and power through weakness, God is God and we are blessed. Do you see? It's, just, it's important, folks. There's a very similar situation between the two. And, and the, but with the commonality is this. God is furthering his purposes through us in both ways. Verse 18, Luke chapter 13. See the first word there, therefore? Now we always learned in Bible college, when you see a therefore, you have to ask yourself what a therefore is there for. You know, or, you know, whatever they say. Okay, very good. Which means it connects back, right? And here's the point. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's teaching he reaches out, he heals this woman because the gospel is all about freeing. Freeing the soul. And one day, we will all be healthy, wealthy, and wise in eternity. Just can't guarantee any of it now. Right? Therefore, Jesus says, 
Religious people who are saying, stop violating what we're doing. And Jesus is saying, there's a wave coming. And there's the wave of the kingdom which I have initiated. And you won't stop it. What you see done with this woman is just part of that wave. Therefore, he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his own garden. And it grew, became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Quote from, from Ezekiel. He says, takes this tiny little seed that you can't barely see, throws it into the ground, which I kind of like. That's kind of my gardening style. Just throw it in, don't worry about it. Um, and it grows bigger than you can possibly imagine. Who would have ever thought, and at the end of the day, you have all these animals that can nest in it. You know what it's a picture of? Jesus starts out with a band of men, one which will betray him. Everyone else deny him. And when you look at the seed of what Jesus starts out with, and you look at where the kingdom of God is today, and where we'll ultimately be at the end of the age, it's a wave that you can never stop. Oh, it starts so small. What can a mustard seed do? What can Jesus do with a bunch of fishermen and others that aren't, don't even, aren't even known? It's a wave. And you're not going to stop it. Jesus says this. And again, he said to them, verse 20, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, which would be enough to feed about 100 people. Until it was all leavened. So I don't know about you ladies. But that's a lot of bread. Right? Just takes a little bit of leaven and throws it in. And however they bake and knead and do all that kind of stuff. When it's all sun and done. That little leaven. Permeates the whole. Do you know. One day when King Jesus comes. We will live in a new heaven and a new earth where there's nothing but righteousness, love, grace, mercy, and purity. Do you know that? Yeah, I know. You, you, you get that way. You get like, man, like today. Well, he might. We don't want when he comes, he comes. That's his business. But 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 that's the point. You can put something little in there. It is Christ has come and died and resurrected. And because of that, things will never be the same, folks. And a wave has begun, though small, will grow and permeate the whole. And religiosity isn't going to stop it. Religious people who have their own systems about Jesus, they're not really Bible-based that thing is going to blow them right over. The kingdom is unstoppable. Something else is unstoppable, though. Because the intricate part of that kingdom coming must be the death of our blessed Lord, isn't it? Look at verse 22. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem, 
And so here he is moving. He's focused, man. He's going to Jerusalem because that's where he's going to fulfill God's mission. And in the process, somebody says to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? I don't know what actually brought that question about. Uh, maybe Jesus had been talking like he does in Matthew 7 about broad is the way to destruction. and that. Maybe something like that. I don't know. But, but in the midst of all that, some guy, and, and you know, they don't quite figure this one out. Whenever you ask a question of Jesus, he's going to answer it in a way that's going to make you feel very unsettled. And maybe he thought, well, you're okay, but the other people aren't. I don't know what he was thinking. But he asked the question, Lord, so could you give us a percentage of the number of people that are going to be saved? And Jesus' response is, don't worry about the percentage. Focus on yourself. Look what he says. And he said to him, strive to enter in by the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Jesus, are you telling me that if I don't deal with things now, there may come a day in eternity when I stand before you and it's too late? Yeah. That's exactly what he's saying. And he gives a parable to teach it. Look at what he says. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Well, well then you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence and, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Is it possible to walk with Christians, to come to a Christian church, to engage in some Jesus talk, to be familiar with Jesus, but not really a follower of Jesus? Is that possible? I was taken back, blessed by the baptisms that we had. And the thing that interested me how many of the young people said, I grew up in church, I knew the lingo, I knew what to say, I served sometimes, I did this, I did that. But they said, I didn't really know Jesus personally. It was kind of distant, you know, I knew about him, but it wasn't a personal relationship with him where, where I love him. He's worked in my heart and not perfect, no, he's perfect. But it's a real relationship. Do, do, do you see? And Jesus talks to a group that have been walking with him and listening to him. And, Jesus, and they're going to say, hey, hey, Jesus, we heard you on earth talking and doing all these things. And he says, but I never knew you. Go. And do eternal punishment. That's a very, very, that's, that's hard, folks. But it's true. And so this guy's saying, hey, Jesus, like percentage on how many people are saved. Jesus says, do you know me? Do you know me? Be serious. Become a forgiven follower of our blessed Lord who has died for you. And he calls them to this. And in this case, 
not only will there be personal pain, for these Jews there's going to be some deep regret and jealousy. He goes on to say this, verse 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see this Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being cast out. They will come from east and west and north and south. They will recline a table in the kingdom of God. Behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. There will be a realization in eternity of Jews who heard Jesus physically talk about the kingdom but never became followers of his. And they will have a realization in the world to come in eternity. They will have a realization that there are people who are prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and Gentiles and all kinds of scum and people who have become forgiven followers of Christ and with him forever in eternity because they've trusted in him alone. And we heard him. And we're Jews. And we're lost forever. You see? The issue for us isn't Judaism. It's familiarity. Walk, talking the talk and doing the things and smiling when you need to and all that kind of stuff. All of which makes me very happy. But it won't do you any good at the end of the day. And I, I, I wonder if there's some other young people here and adults who need to take the same, same step that these young people took during the baptism just a few weeks ago. Let God work in your heart. And if you have issues or questions about it, please don't ever hesitate to talk to anybody about it. I don't know a Christian living. I, 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 whenever I talk on these topics, I always want to be balanced because in every church, you have scared saints and secure sinners. It's true. You have people, when you preach messages like this, you're going to think, oh, I don't think I'm a Christian then, maybe because I'm not doing it. You know, and then they, they come and you talk and they have a vibrant walk with Jesus. They're not perfect. None of us are. It's not about that. It's about him. But they have a real relationship with him. They're, but they're scared saints. And the last thing I'm going to do is make you more scared. But are there secure sinners? Because sometimes you feel like you have to take a two-by-four and crack them over the head or something, you know, to get their attention. And I, I just plead with you. Familiarity is not faith. It's not a true faith. Jesus is on his way and whether a particular person believes or not, that will not stop him from what he's going to accomplish. It will affect their life, but he will accomplish what he's going to do. Pharisees can't help but jump in on this one. Look at verse 31. Just at that time, some Pharisees came up saying to him, go away and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. I don't know what their motive was on this one. I don't know if they were saying, get out of our territory so we're going to scare you. Maybe, maybe. Or if there was a level of sincerity there where they were saying, you know, this is the particular Herod. 
you ever find yourself reading the New Testament, you, whenever you read the word Herod, you say, like, which one? Yeah. You, should, you should think that way because they're all over the place. You know, there's Herod the Great, and then there's Herod Archelaus, and Herod Antipas, and then there's Herod Agrippa the First, and Herod Agrippa the Second, Herod Philip way up here. I mean, they're just all over the place. There's all these Herod guys. Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great, who was in charge of the entire area of Palestine. It was broken up between Antipas and Galilee and Perea, and uh, Archelaus and Judea. And so here's the point. Antipas came to rule in 4 B.C. He will rule until 39 A.D. when because he's trying to make a power grab, the emperor will say, you're done. I'm going to exile you. It's over. Jesus, Jesus' entire life was under the rulership of Herod Antipas. And Antipas is in charge of Galilee, and Jesus is creating problems in Galilee. And so he's the power broker that's trying to say, okay, who is this guy, religious guy? I need to meet him is what he wanted to do at one point. But at this particular point, apparently he's saying, I killed John the Baptist. I'll kill him too if I need to. So maybe it was a fair warning. But I love Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, you go and tell that fox. That wasn't a compliment. You tell that deceptive, destructive person. You go and you tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and I perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I reach my goal. I don't care who's in power, Jesus says. Doesn't matter. It could be Antipas. It could be Agrippa. Herod. Bring Herod the Great back. I don't care. I have a mission. Performing miracles, curing, and teaching, and going to Jerusalem. And no political figure is going to get in my way. So you're the Pharisees. They're like, ooh, okay. <laughs> I mean, the guy that said that one probably felt like, I don't know, maybe, maybe you should have. I don't know what he thought, but it's like, oh, okay. Look at what he goes on to say. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. And I've often wondered why verse 34 and 35 is here. And I'll tell you why I think it's here. Not only, I mean, obviously because Jesus said it, but fair enough. Pharisees look at Jesus and say, Jesus, Herod's trying to kill you. And Jesus says, it won't stop me from going to Jerusalem and accomplishing my purpose. No. And I want you to know something else, Pharisees. You represent a religious movement that has said no to me. And you won't stop me either. But it doesn't mean I don't love you. It does mean I will accomplish my purpose in spite of you. So look at what he says in verse 34 and 35. Does he say, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and who gives a rip about Jerusalem? Is that what he says? No. No, not our blessed Lord. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. Just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not have it. Behold, and I think he probably said this with a tear in his eye. 
Your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Pharisees, you represent an entire Jewish nation and you have said, no, no, no. I am going to Jerusalem. I will die there. You will be responsible for it, but I will redeem the world in my death. And I will grieve in the whole process that you never received me in the process. Oh, Jerusalem, I would love, to, and I want you to know something else. There is coming a day in the future when the nation will turn back to me. And finally say, we see you as Messiah. As Paul says in Romans 11. It's pretty powerful, isn't it, folks? Don't you love, if you know Christ, being on the winning team? Doesn't mean everything's easy. Matter of fact, if you read the kingdom parables in Matthew 13, man, you find out that the life which we now live is marked by great opportunity and great opposition all at the same time. That there's going to be false teachers along the way. And yeah, yeah, it gets muddy. And but, 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 it's gone somewhere. And if you know Christ, you are part of this wave that will never be stopped. And so, what Jesus has started cannot be stopped. He will die on the cross. He will forgive our sins. He will resurrect from the grave. He will ascend on high. He will rule. He will come back. And no one will stop it. Those who reject him or oppose him will always do so to their own peril. So beware religiosity. It is possible to be a religious person and that be the very thing that keeps you from Jesus. Happens all the time. Beware familiarity. Talking the talk, smiling when you should smile, and not knowing Jesus. And don't worry about political power. Herod Antipas thinks he's the most powerful guy in the world. He's going to take another step. And, in 30, and within 10 years after Christ's death, he's done. He's, it's all over for him. And that's the way it is. One political figure after another political figure after another political They rise, they fall, they rise, they fall, they rise, they fall. But this king goes on and on. And you will never stop him. Isn't that right? I mean, that's what we... That's the truth, folks. So don't... Don't, don't worry. As we sang today, we are secure in his love if you know him. He will take us the distance. Those who accept him should be encouraged and should allow him to continue to use them to further his kingdom purposes. And maybe it's volunteering at the vault. Maybe it's starting to pray for a coworker. That you know God wants you to talk to. But you know if you talk to him. It creates all kinds of problems at work. But the spirit of God has touched your heart in that area. Maybe it's an extended family member. It's reaching out. In the love of Christ. At personal sacrifice. As he has done for us. To further his kingdom purposes. 
So I don't know what that looks like exactly for you. But life is too short to play around. You know that old um, nursery rhyme? We taught it to our kids when they were young. Um, pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? I've been to London to visit the Queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what did you there? I mean, this must have been unbelievable. You're like Buckingham Palace or wherever she is. I uh, frightened a little mouse under her chair. You could have done that back home. I don't want to psychoanalyze that poor nursery rhyme. But we stand in the presence of the king. And we chase mice. And that doesn't make any sense. Father, Father,